0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Drive Through FM episode number 14. This is for May 2018. I hope everybody is having a nice spring leading us into summer. I'm excited to go to Gen Con later this summer. I know a lot of folks are raring to go to Origins in June and all kinds of other conventions. Dice Tower Con is going to be happening really soon. Uh, so I hope everybody's doing very well. We got kind of an interesting topic, I think, uh, this month. I have done some uh, research into publishing a game and kind of what all of that entails and what it involves and had a lot of sort of interviews and uh, picked a lot of people's brains about a lot of different things, artists, designers, publishers, distributors, uh, all kinds of good stuff. So that's gonna be kind of the main topic at the end of the podcast. And once we get through some reviews and things like that, then we'll jump right into that. Uh, Before I get into doing any reviews and talking about games, I just wanted to kind of mention, uh, if you are subscribed to the YouTube channel, hopefully you'll have seen these, I have done three video reviews here in the past uh, several weeks. Uh, So I kind of caught up, so to speak, and I'm kind of getting into this, uh, hopefully, routine of a format of doing one uh, podcast a month and then one, maybe two video reviews a month. And I kind of took my highlights from uh, the first couple of months of the year, uh, Time of Crisis, uh, Lords of Hellas and Fog of Love and kind of gave it the video review treatment. Now it's a little bit different style of review than I've done in the past, a little bit more conversational. The rules overview is not super detailed, just kind of a general sense, kind of picking out the key highlights. Uh, So I will be doing a video review here, maybe next week or the week after, kind of depending on some other things going on, but uh, of the kind of the number one game here for this group of games, which if you look at the show notes, you will know what it is. Uh, But if you want to keep it in suspense, then just kind of listen. But anyway, I've been pretty happy with that. I think there's some things I can work on, of course. It's kind of a new format, so I'm kind of just, uh, its it, but it's fun keeping it fresh and doing different things, and so any feedback is, of course, appreciated. Uh, just to kind of jump into the little what I've been playing part, uh, this is the sort of area where I cover maybe older games that have come back to the table. Uh, this is a little bit of a cheat, because this is actually a very new edition. I'm not even sure it's quite out at the time of this recording, but it's a very old game, and this is uh, High Society from Reiner Knizia. This is being brought over by Osprey Games. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'll be flashing up some pictures of the art as I go along, but also have in the show notes a link to kind of like a little Twitter thread uh, where I went through and posted the art for every single card in the game. Now, there's not a ton of cards in the game, so it's not that long of a thread, But the art and just the overall graphic design of this new edition is, it blew me away. Uh, Frankly, it's very well done. It's got a real interesting style. Uh, The way that the characters and everything are depicted in it is very, very interesting. I loved all of that stuff. Uh, Now, if you've not played High Society, I have done a video review of it uh, several years ago. And this is one that's kind of stuck around in the group and floated around. And then I think I got rid of it maybe a year or two ago, just because it wasn't coming out. Uh, but it was one of those where, like, yeah, hey, I wish I you know hadn't got rid of it. And lo and behold, Osprey has come out with a new edition. Uh, it's a very very simple auction style game. But even if you do not like auction games, I would still one thousand percent give this one a try. So what happens is everybody gets the same exact hand of cards in their hand, and they're just little money cards. So it goes from one to twenty five thousand. And you skip some numbers in between so you get like a one a two a three a four a six and eight and a ten and all the way up to twenty five and then you have a small deck of cards in the middle and they're just worth victory points and some of them are like multipliers so you'll get a times two card so you'll multiply whatever victory point cards you've gotten by the end of the game by two some of them will actually cut your points in half so you kind of bid not to get that there's a negative five point card and so on so you just flip over a card and then whoever's the start player will put down one or more of their money cards from their hand. So maybe I put down a 10. Maybe we flipped a five point victory point card over, I put down a 10. And then it just goes around the table. People can play cards from their hand, they have to beat whatever the highest bid is currently on the table or they can pass. And then once it gets back to you, if you want to increase your bid, you have to then add to the cards in front of you. So if you wanted to bid, I don't know, like let's say 12 or 11, you can't pull up the 10 and then put down a six and a five. You've gotta only add to what you've got out there. So if you think about that, as you use up your lower numbered cards, use lose, use, use up your one, your two, and your three, the jump that you can make in terms of incrementing your bid is gonna be a lot. You, you maybe will be kind of forced to overbid. So you gotta be very careful about using those low number cards. So you just keep doing that around and around until Uh, Four cards that have sort of like a green sort of background color once that fourth one pops up and is just displayed The round will immediately end or the game will immediately end and then you count up your points So the timer you don't really know quite when it's gonna end But once that second and then third green card come up, then you know, okay Maybe I've got to you know, make a make a run for one of these high-value cards that might come up and not hold back money the trick and the the real key of the game though is once all the cards are out then the player who has the least amount of money left in their hand, no matter how many points they've collected over the course of the game, they're automatically out of the game, they lose. So you don't wanna spend too much money because then if you have the least amount of money, then you automatically lose because no matter how many points you have. So that's a really cool thing. And the game play usually takes 15 minutes, let's say. Uh, It can even happen quicker. And it just, you get these really hilarious moments And you wouldn't think so. I mean, you really would not think so from just a game where, like, I have money cards, I'm bidding on cards with points. That's all you're doing. But because you have just a very finite supply of money cards, and like I said, you got to watch the low number cards, and then you have to also make sure that you're kind of watching how much other players are bidding. So, you know, oh, Billy was dumb. He went in for that multiplier, the two-times multiplier, and he spent, you know, let's say $35 out of it. Thirty-five thousand, and you know okay i've got some bidding room to breathe now but you don't really know because as you discard these cards you're not really counting up you know who i mean you could you could be one of those guys that you know counts money and stuff but blah 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 but you don't really know what they've been holding back and stuff you can kind of keep an eye on it uh you know but so you do want to keep an eye on it but it just this has these great uh funny moments and uh auction games are interesting i don't like them all but i do kind of like them and I would say this game probably elicits the most laughter of any auction game I've ever played, and I've played several of them. Uh, so I definitely recommend uh, people go out and pick this game. I don't know what the MSRP of it is. I think it's probably fifteen, twenty bucks. You can find it for online. I, like it's just it's a couple of cards and things. Uh, but there's a there's a review I did of it, and definitely I think uh, my estimation of the game has really increased over time. I don't remember exactly what I said on the review. I haven't gone back and watched it, but I do know that I've appreciated this more and more and more uh, as the years have kind of gone by. So definitely take a look at High Society. So that's really the only sort of older game uh, that I've been playing. I did have sort of a streak there where I was getting back into playing uh, older games and bring them back out to the table. But it seems like this last month, trickling back into the month before, it's been a lot of new stuff. Uh, And this is gonna be an interesting month because there's a couple, here that I would fall into what I call my blacklist, uh, and all the way up to I think one of my favorite games of all time now. So this is going to be a lot of uh, of variance this month in terms of you know m- my overall sort of mood about the game. So this should be interesting. So let's take a quick little break here, catch my breath, and then we'll jump into reviewing. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight games. Eight games, okay, so we'll try to be a little bit succinct. Welcome back. Let's jump into the first game, and that is going to be Marvel Contest of Champions Battle Arena. This is a new game from Upper Deck, who has made another couple of superhero games that I've really enjoyed. They have the Legendary series, and they also have the new Versus System two-player card game series, and I've enjoyed both of those immensely. This game, not so much. (laughs) Now, if I had to sort of sum up this game, it would be kind of like King of Tokyo, but with uh, superheroes. And the theme is actually pretty interesting because normally, like, okay, all the superheroes are fighting each other. Well, why? And that's sort of a, a deal-breaker or a weird bit of the theme, even though in the comic books, they end up fighting each other, you know, more often than they probably should. Uh, so you've been kind of, like, captured by the collector on the the world and then put put into the arena. I don't remember if it was the collector, but the guy in uh, Thor Ragnarok. So you, you've sort of been pitted to fight against each other. And you have these little standees, And it's kind of like King of Tokyo, where you're kind of moving around from uh, different locations. In this case, there's multiple locations. And there's a lot of locations in the game. So the variability is there in terms of the different cards. And each location has a little ability and all that kind of stuff. And there's also a prison location, which is kind of put in the center. And I hate this location. I hate the whole mechanic of this. Because I feel like if they could figure out, or maybe I could figure out a house rule to get around this prison deal, that might actually be a really fun game. So each player gets a nice little kind of player card, player board with these kind of dials built in. So you're tracking your hit points and your victory points and so on on there. And it's got a little player aid built in, very nice. Uh, Gives you a list of different special abilities that you can use. So if you're the Hulk, you know, you get some big attacks and stuff like that. And the Captain America can like throw a shield into different locations and damage people at range and all that kind of stuff. And then you also have a hand of these cards as well that you can play. Now the whole mechanic is driven from like kind of a Yahtzee mechanic. You get a bunch of these specialized dice that you roll and then some of the symbols you have to keep and they kind of like lock and then you can re-roll a couple more times. And so you're looking for different symbols to do kind of like some basic actions like move around and punch, but also look for combos of dice to activate some special abilities on your board or cards in your hand. And so you move around and kind of punch each other and then you get victory points from moving. So the, the game kind of forces you to move because you want to move from one location to another. And whenever you end your turn on a location, you get that many points. And then there'll be some other special effect on the different location that's either bad or it kind of beefs up your dice rolling or mitigates the dice, maybe adds a symbol, stuff like that. Uh, but if you roll three of a kind of a certain symbol, then you go to jail. And it's the game that I played of it, was that happened like a lot (laughs) so you would roll that and then you would be sent to not jail but prison and then you're going to kind of roll to get out of it and it's this big stupid thing and i hated that part of the game uh yeah there were ways to to mitigate it and some characters kind of had a built-in mitigation where they only had to roll they had to actually roll four to go to the prison and so on and there were other ones that where you would roll three and it would make an explosion and that would affect people and that one wasn't bad because it was like okay you make an explosion and it does some damage and No big deal. Uh, So, but you just kind of move around and punch each other. And it was just like very tug of war-ish. And I feel like it, I was like, cool, this is like King of Tokyo and, but it's superhero. So that's neat. But after playing it, I was like, this is why King of Tokyo is so good is because you're either damaging the one person in the middle or the person in the middle is damaging everybody. And that simple mechanic compounded with all the crazy special effects that are just going to be completely different every game. That just makes it super fun and interesting and wacky and wild. Whereas this has the whole prison thing, you're locked in there, you're just kind of like attacking the leader and bringing him down. That doesn't have that weird interesting thing of entering the city and leaving the city to kind of mitigate some of that. Um, And it's just a bunch of tug of war back and forth. Oh, he's winning, I'll hit him and I'll hit this. and kind of ping, 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 points back and forth. It just gets real sort of uh, like rote and procedural. And there's no, like, mechanic to uh, mitigate kind of what the cards do. It's like, I have these cards, and I played them, and I did them. And it would be more interesting, I think, where if, like, you use this big, awesome attack that has, like, 10 damage. I'm exaggerating, but it does 10 damage. And then you, can, uh, you can't you can play that card again until you play, like, two more cards or something. Like, if I've had something built like that, so you're had to be a little bit more choosy about doing your big effect, then that might be more interesting. And taking out the prison, I think, would be really good. Uh, but... Yeah, the components are pretty nice. You know that the standees aren't huge like King of Tokyo, but they're fine. And some decent little art on them. It's not the greatest art in the world, in my opinion, but it's fine. And uh, the special abilities and stuff are cool, but it just feels sort of like I don't know. It it, it doesn't it it feels like it could have used more work or something. Because I feel like there is a good game, and it made me just want to play King of Tokyo, but with superheroes and just have different powers and stuff. So I just played that, those exact mechanics. Anyway, so that's uh, Marvel Contest of Champions. Not a fan of that. Uh, The next game to talk about is Castell. And this is from Renegade uh, Games. And this one, there were parts of this one that I liked. So what this is, is this is an interesting thing, which I didn't know about. Is each player is sort of forming a troop of these Castells. And these are, that may not be the exact right word. I think they're called Castellants or something, or Castellers. And it's a tradition in Spain where you kind of wander around and you build like these giant like human pyramids and of course sort of stack humans in these different formations. And they go around and they kind of get prestige and sometimes the whole crowd gets involved. I I watched a couple of videos on it after playing the game. So that was a good sign. Uh, And they just do these cool like kind of death defying uh, formations of human bodies. And they have like the big, strong, huge uh, people at the bottom and then you even get kids involved. So you kind of put them way up the top and they're like you know, uh, dozens of feet in the air and stuff like that. And you try to do it in, in such a way that they don't fall down and they try to really push the limit. So they, these folks made a sort of a Euro game around that. And I gotta say the game is some interesting sort of Euroy things with puzzles cause you get these different cards and there's like different numbered cards. So like the nines will be at the bottom and you kind of rearrange your pyramids. And you try to meet like these different uh, recipes. So you think of this, I got like some nines, some eights, some ones and twos. And I'm trying to build formations that are maybe like, you know, three wide and four high, or maybe it's like a triangle. And so you're moving your troop around this board, trying to fulfill these kind of different patterns that come up. And you can sort of see all of the patterns um, in the game uh, kind of laid out. So there's a kind of like the main scoring that happens every couple of rounds. If you think of, if you've played in the year of the dragon, it kind of reminds me of that where you can kind of see the plan, except instead of bad things happening to you, like in that game, this is like, okay, this is my plan. And I'm gonna kind of maneuver. You can move from different locations. You can buy new artists and get, you know, get different things and run like little specials. And then you kind of work your path that way. But then there's kind of like little tactical things that you can do to score some of these sort of weird one-off kind of side quest kind of things. And here's the thing, that all is kind of neat and kind of interesting, it's a cool little puzzle to solve. But then you're like, you're just arranging these people in these weird formations and just trying to solve the victory point puzzle. And for some reason, uh, myself and everybody at the table to lesser or more degrees, thought that that was kind of just a weird thing that kind of mechanism was kind of weird to marry to this very uh you know physical and dexterous type of activity where you're like it's it feels like the mechanics are just completely separate from the theme now yes you're stacking cards and getting like sort of different sized human beings and trying to get them and recruit them into their different formations but I don't know. There was just a real kind of detachment for for me and the other folks, uh, and I think for me especially, I, I was kind of more in the end. Some of the other folks I played it with were like, yeah, I mean, they were totally on the same page as me, but it just kind of bothered them less than it bothered me. Um, so, is this weird? Like, you, you just you're you're kind of fulfilling these recipes and sort of logistically and tactically moving your troop around on this on this map, uh, and it just really kind of pulled me out of what actually happens in real life and that actually kind of co- compounded uh once i started researching because like what is this i've never heard of this sort of tradition And it's really neat It's so it's kind of a a very niche uh, uh you know tradition that you just you know that just happens in spain as far as i know and so that's kind of a cool thing that somebody would take that and be such a fan of that and appreciate that hopefully that they would kind of translate that into the board game world uh, yeah, but for me, it was just like, ugh, I don't know, it just it doesn't marry up nicely. So that was just a weird thing. Now the puzzle and stuff that was interesting, I thought it was all kind of well balanced and put together. But again, the puzzle to me was so dry on that side, that it, the rest of it didn't in, in, in hook me in. So I like the theme. I like the idea. Like I said, the tradition, that's cool. That's an awesome thing. And then I kind of like the mechanics. But those mechanics, I felt like, should be applied to something else. Except for, of course, stacking and arranging the cards. But something you would arrange and move around and and build. Because it was a very tight, dry, economic kind of thing with this, you know, really weird, funky uh, tradition. Uh, And I didn't think the mechanics had any funk. (laughs) So that's Castell. Uh, The next game is coming out from a company called Foxmind, but it's also a very old game that I hadn't actually played uh, until I played this new edition. And I think it's out now, but not uh, readily available. I think it'll be more available here leading up into Gen Con. And this is called Manhattan, and its designer is uh, Andreas Seafarth, who did uh, Puerto Rico and San Juan and some other games like that. And I think this won the Spiel des Jahres award back in 1994. And it's a very abstract uh, kind of game. You have these little city boards uh, that are in front of you on this main board. And you have these different size like building tiles. You have like size one, two, three, and four. You can easily see, you know, which is a size one. It's these little stubby ones. And then you have some size fours that are taller ones. And then you get a hand of cards. And based on your sort of orientation and where you're sitting on which edge of the board, you'll play these cards and they'll show you where you can put a piece. But before you play in around you have to take and and choose six of the pieces and put it on this little mat. And then you've declared, okay, I'm using these six pieces out of my whole collection. And these are the ones I'm gonna be placing. What you're trying to do is take control and have buildings that you own on these different little regions of the city. And you own a building by having the piece that's on top of it. But when you add a piece to an existing sort of structure, an existing building, you have to have more of your stuff in that to be able to do it. So if I have like a size one and a size two right on top of each other, that means I have kind of like three points of influence or whatever in that uh, board. Uh, so in, in that space. And so if Billy to my left, he plays a size four piece. That's fine because then he has equaled or or matched uh, my uh, my building. So you just keep playing around. You have to kind of uh, you know try to play last and play on top of things. Hold back your big pieces to kind of play at the end and then sort of sneak in and capture stuff. Now I will say this is a better two-player game than it is a four-player game. I played two and four players, uh, but it just feels honestly. I hate saying this because I, I, you know, a lot of people call games that I enjoy from back in the day dated, uh, and I disagree. But uh, this one feels dated to me. It's just like it's not like a whole lot really going on. I could see this being a fun family game, but the problem is, is that I think with four players, it's too chaotic it's just like so much is going on and you just you, you can't really plan for anything you know there's some certain principles you can stick to but you know it's not really going to pay off for you it's just somebody's going to end up being having the right uh card location thing to play on top of you and you you kind of push your luck and say oh, i'm going to play here and hope that you know the next three players don't have this and invariably somebody's going to have something and be able to play on top of it so going early just stinks uh, you know the start player moves around the board but it just it just didn't really do a lot for me. Um, it's it's definitely not terrible or anything. It just, just real basic, real abstract, lots of kind of luck in the cards. Uh, with the two-player, you can kind of play back and forth a little bit. You control two colors and stuff like that, too. Uh, so you're kind of sort of moving and hedging your bets over in different areas, trying to control them. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of a very bland thing, kind of keeping in theme with Castell. It's just like, ah... Yeah, it's an abstract, and I like abstracts to a degree, but there was just too much kind of randomness in this for me to really get behind uh, the abstractness of it. Uh, but I think, but, you know, back in the day, it won the Spiel des jar and I'm sure it was probably worthy of it because there was not very many games coming out uh, that used, you know, any kind of uh, modern design sensibilities back then. Uh, but, you know, maybe take a look at this one. It is pretty. I like the new kind of updated art. It's a little bit kind of a... Um, I don't want to say... What's the word for this? Because sometimes you'll see something that's bright and colorful and vibrant, and it feels like almost tropical, but it's not tropical. It's like very summery, right? It's this very summery kind of beach feel. And I, I quite like that uh, sort of look and feel. The old one's is very, very uh, brown and stodgy and, and probably a little bit more boring, I would say. Uh, but the building pieces have this nice kind of translucent uh, color to them. And it looks really like a weird... Uh, alien world of buildings once you get them all stacked out there but yeah anyway that's uh Manhattan and so those are kind of the three sort of eh you know like Manhattan I'd maybe give a six and so that might be one that I would review back in the day and and maybe tell people about because I can see the merit there the other two I wouldn't I wouldn't those would be blacklist ones the castell ones a little I feel a little bit icky kind of blacklisting that but it just it's so detached but now we're gonna move into a couple of games that I quite enjoy. And then after that, of course, we'll get to some games uh, that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, the next one here is uh, Council of Four. Now this is a couple of years old from I think Cranio Creations. It's now being re-released by CMON, cool stuff. And uh, they've kind of minified it. They've got these real nice, colorful, chunky minis. And it has this really cool, interesting uh, mechanics to this game. It's a tricky one to explain. Uh, I know there's some videos on it. Definitely go take a look at, it, look at those if they sound interesting to you. But you have these weird uh, combos that you build up. So you get these hands of different colored cards. And you have these giant-ish uh, sort of politician minis in the, each of these kind of four sectors. So like a yellow, a blue, maybe another blue, and a brown one in one area. And then the next sector over has some different colors. And they sort of control these different columns of this board. And so in these columns, it's like a big map with these areas kind of divided up and there's different locations in each sort of areas. So think of them like these really strange looking like counties or states or something. And so if you want to do something, like you want to uh, get access to some kind of like objective tile or job tile, you'll play some cards, you'll grab that as long as they match, you know, that area that you're in, one of those, you'll grab that. And then you'll be able to see on your next turn, uh fulfill that and then put in like a little worker and then each of the spaces has a little uh, action that you take so it might give you some money or do some other cool thing or give you some extra cards and stuff like that so as you start to put them out you will want to kind of keep them adjacent so maybe a couple of turns down the road i put another worker in a city that's adjacent to the one i previously did so i activate the city that i was in and then you will daisy chain any cities that you have a worker in that are adjacent. So I put it in city A, that's gonna trigger city B, which might be adjacent to city C, where I also have a worker, so that'll trigger, which maybe trigger anything next to it. And so on. you're going to activate anything uh, towards the end of the game. Now, the real kind of interesting sort of dynamic of that is okay, you think everyone wants to build in one spot and then kind of spiral out from there. And then by the end of the game, you're just doing these huge combos of like, you know, getting new cards, allowing you to do like a second turn another action. But you also get a ton of victory points for sort of fulfilling, again, sort of these recipes. So there's, each of the cities is a different color. And there's like these two like kind of light blue ones and they're like on opposite sides of the board. So if you go and chase those, you're gonna get like 40 points right at the beginning of the game because you fulfilled sort of that completion. But if you fill up like all of them in the same column, then you'll get the, some points for being the first one to do that. So it's kind of a race to do that and kind of put people kind of all over the, in different places where the game wants you to, and that's pretty static. But then you also want to keep them close to each other to do these cooler combos. So that is a very interesting sort of conundrum that you want to do. And you definitely want to chase those points earlier in the game because there's sort of a generic victory point tile stack that give you extra points for completing any of those other general objectives so the first person to complete any of the combo you know objective things you get like an extra 25 points on top of that so you want to do that super early and then just kind of like tactically build adjacent and kind of hedge your bets and stuff like that uh yeah so that's kind of the explanation there it's definitely one that i think you want to see a video because like all the objective spaces and and, you know actions in the cities are all shuffled up every game so you get a good sense of how replayable it might be it's really fun you can definitely have a runaway leader especially as there are new players in the the game that don't quite see how the combos and stuff will chain together i don't think that's a problem with the game i just think it's something that kind of warn people about that you know it's going to take you like a play usually to figure out okay i should have done this i should have done that i should have blocked you know, Billy over there or whatever. Uh, so just kind of know that going into it. But I did enjoy this game. It was very, very fun. That's Council of Four from Simon. Now, the next game I played, I've been talking about these for a while since last year. And I finally got to play an exit game, which is like an escape room kind of board game thing. And I've talked about my, really my love for the unlock games, uh, which are escape room games that kind of come with an app that you will help you kind of go through it and every time i talk about these and these these are my favorite you know escape room style games and they still are uh, but every time i bring it up everybody says well you have to play an exit game because that's my favorite and usually they also like unlock 2 they just like exit better so that's a good sign right we both like this other thing that's the same a lot you just happen to like this other's better so i did play the one it was the forbidden island or forgotten island uh, one which I think is one of the easiest. It's like not the easiest, easiest, but it's down there towards the easy side. And I I really enjoyed it. I I liked it. I want to play another one to kind of give me a better sense of it because it was just kind of a, it was a weird situation. It took us like 15 or maybe 20 minutes to get our first clue. And it was just because we couldn't really, for some reason, piece together how this sort of system worked in the way it did, but once it clicked, we kind of rolled right through the rest of the clues. And uh, you know, and then we, you know, we hit the little stumbling blocks there and there, but we we understood how the system worked and how to sort of link some of the different puzzles and things in uh, in the game back to each other and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that I don't really like, and there's one thing I really like about it that I like better than the unlock game, and there's another piece I don't like as much. And let's talk about the thing I really like. So the one thing I really like is the physicality uh, of the puzzles. And that's one thing that Unlock lacks. It's all very sort of cerebral and, you know, ethereal almost. Uh, very much in your brain. Uh, but it is grounded, I will say, Unlock, in some sort of spatial reality. Because you have, you have physical spaces that you're sort of uh, going in and visiting as you full unfold these cards. But this one, you're going to take parts of the... Uh, little journals and things and it gives you little widgets and stuff like that you're going to be able to use and you manipulate and you know bend and tear and all that other stuff i don't want to spoil anything obviously Uh, so it's a very physical kind of thing and you're still sort of grounded in some sort of space but it is really more on the side of here's a box of random puzzles solve them whereas unlock and also the escape room uh, board game as well uh, you you feel like you're in a sort of a virtual space, a virtual world when you do that. So th- I like the physicality of it. Now, the thing I, I don't like about it, and I, I guess all of them are the same, is they have this little wheel to help you solve the puzzles. And they're just sort of like, everything kind of like has a little icon on it. And it makes sense because you're like, okay, this icon goes with this icon, so that gives me this number. And okay, that means I'm trying to find uh, sort of abstractly the key combination to this lock and you turn these wheels and it'll tell you a card to go pull out of this deck Because everything's driven by a deck of cards uh, Similar to unlock but kind of different and she so goes it tells you to go fish out a thing Which will give you a new puzzle which you'll then solve and sometimes they're little pictures of locations and stuff But in this particular one, it was just like here's another chest. Here's another lock. Here's another thing Or here's a map and then you've got to go look in the journal with a map uh, so it just gets super abstract. And this this one did. And that's why I want to try another one to sort of just see, okay, do it. Is this good? You know, is this better than Unlock really? Or is do I like Unlock more? Because, uh, frankly, a lot of people tell me they also like Unlock more than Exit 2. Not that it friggin' matters <laughs> which one is better. They're both kind of fun. Um, so, yeah, I want to play another one. We had a good time with it. There were some weird, interesting, like, uh, frustrating points of the puzzles, though, that kind of took me out of the theme. But I think now that we understand it from the beginning, I want to do another one. And I I have my expectations set in the right way. So I think I can come and play it and have a great time with it. And really, you know, I I know what the game is trying to do for me. Uh, So that should be interesting. So that was uh, Exit the Forgotten Island one, I believe. So I would recommend it. If you haven't played the Exit games and you've played Unlock or Escape Room the board game, those are the other two I really enjoyed. I've played several other Escape Room games and I like them to more or less degrees. But for my money, Unlock and Escape Room the board game, best two for sure. And then followed closely, very closely I think by Exit. But again, I want to play another sort of scenario out of that. Okay, so that was Exit. Now we're going to talk about three games and these games... I really have no uh, quibbles about um, about recommending, frankly. Uh, so the first one we're gonna talk about is from AEG and it's called Space Base, which is a awful, awful, awful name. And the cover, I do not like the cover. And I only say that I don't really care about a cover of a board game, honestly, I, I don't care. You can paint it black. I don't really, I do not care about the cover. The only reason I'm mentioning it here Is because I think it's not good And I think that's unfortunate Because if anybody goes into a store and looks at it They'll probably walk right by it Unfortunately But whatever, I don't really care about the cover It just upsets me because the game is really fun and neat And so I hope people do not just walk right by it Now, the art inside and stuff is really cool It's kind of a, uh, I don't know how you would call it Almost like a cell-shaded, not quite, kind of flat uh, Science fiction kind of thing so the mechanics though these would please do not run away when i say this it's like machi Koro, but better now this is just way better than machi Koro, though uh machi Koro's game i did enjoy i thought it was fine i don't know a lot of people like to hate on it i think it's fine game it's not amazing but with the expansion i like it uh, and there was kind of a follow-up game also by aeg in this case uh, called dice city which was very very fun uh, but this to me blows both of those out of the water. And I kind of liken it to Machi Koro, but also like craps, which Machi Koro kind of is like craps too, Uh, the gambling game craps. Uh, So what it is, let me explain the mechanics, is you get a row of 12 cards. Everybody gets the same 12 cards. And on your turn, you roll two dice. And then you get to activate either uh, adding up the dice. So let's say I rolled a five and a two, and I activate my number seven card. Or if I want, I can activate my number five card and my number two card. So you can either split the dice or combine them and then, you know, activate your card. Now, other players, when you roll on your turn, they can do the same thing with their row of cards. However, you have a board that you have these row of cards on. And after you activate your card, you can buy new cards. And when you buy it, you have to replace one of the cards in the slots. And each of the cards actually has a definitive slot that it goes in. So if I buy a card, it'll have like a number three on it. I've got to replace my number three card. I take that card that I am covering over, take it and turn it upside down and tuck it under my board and there'll be a little action there at the bottom of the card and any action of cards that you've sort of replaced, then you're going to activate on other players' turns. So you try to buy sort of random cards all over the, the map, at least to start, and then on other players' turns, you are theoretically activating your cards that you've tucked under more and more and more as the game goes on. You've bought more cards and stuff. And so the idea is to then just get 40 victory points and win the game. Now, the other thing you can do once you start to accrue money, because you get money out of the cards, you get income, which is going to then generate more money at the start of your turn. And you get little special abilities in the cards. There's so many special abilities. There's a lot of iconography in the game. Uh, you know, it's it gets a little bit nutty when you first play it. But once you get through a play of it, you'll kind of get it. Uh, and then you get these little abilities of light to activate like adjacent cards and swap cards around and you get like little charge tokens you put on cards and then you can spring them off and then do cool abilities no matter what you rolled and all this stuff like that. So you get all these cool things and combos. Uh, but you're just trying to get to 40 points. And as soon as somebody gets to 40 points, you, you finish out the equal number of turns and then, you know, whoever has the most points wins. Now you can also buy just straight up cards that are just victory points. Uh, these are special like yellow colored cards and when you do that you put them on a spot but then you can no longer buy cards um, that give you uh, that go in that particular slot now other cards you can buy will generate points as you hit the numbers on the dice but these when you buy them you just get an exact number of points and they're relatively expensive especially to start off the game and then as you kind of go along, you can get some very high value points as well. Real simple game. You know, you roll your dice, you activate your cards. Other people activate their cards. Uh, theoretically, you buy more cards. You buy a single card every turn if you can. And then uh, the other thing is if when you buy a card, you actually spend all of your money. So if you have like 30 bucks and you really want to buy the $5 card, you spend all your money. And then at the start of your turn, you get your income. And you probably have collected money on other people's turns. So it's not like you're going to start with zero every time at all. Uh, so that's kind of, it's interesting. and uh, But it's a game that plays really, really fun, and it gets very exciting as people start to kind of race to get closer to 40 points. I don't know. It's very simple, and it's interesting because you can either combine and split the dice, and there's little abilities and things that are going to interact with that. It's just a great, fun little filler game. Uh, that just Again, there's just a lot of excitement out of these very simple uh, mechanics of roll, roll two dice, combine them or don't and then kind of do what the ability says there and buy a card that you think is good, and <laughs> that's it. Uh, but it's super fun. I definitely recommend uh, taking a look at Space Base. Now the next game, I really uh, went back and forth on this game and then my final game in terms of kind of the one that I would sort of single out and then you know do a video review on exactly. And uh, so this game here is uh, it's from Plat Hat Games. It's called Crystal Clans. And it's very much in the vein of like a Summoner Wars, a little bit like a Mage Wars type of thing, where you've got a board, you've got stacks of cards, and you're moving in the round. There are different creatures and wizards or whatever, and uh, you know you're doing combat with other players, with uh, with with one other player. It's a two-player game, and you're moving around just trying to do stuff, and you get card combos and things. And then in this case, it's a very kind of small condensed board. And it comes with six factions of creatures. And I played through f- with four of them. I, there's two that I haven't played with. And uh, and you just you play and you get action points to spend and put out. And the whole game is driven by action points. What you're trying to do is move into an area that has a crystal. You spend action points to collect the crystal. And there'll be like some special ability usually when you collect the crystal that goes off. And then simply the first player to collect four of those crystals wins. Now, the whole action point system is really the key of the game is when I want to recruit a guy, it'll cost me some action points to spend them out and I can add them to my stack. And if I want to move a stack or like a unit, it's going to cost me some action points and maybe have special abilities that cost me action points. But as soon as I move and kind of push this little action point tracker, uh, it it kind of goes between the two players. And then once it gets to their side, then I'm done. I can't spend any more so they get a few so at the beginning you're kind of just pushing and pulling kind of over that middle line back and forth until somebody does something really big and uh you know one thing that you can do that's really big is actually getting one of the crystals usually costs you like eight or nine action points but as soon as you do that you've pushed it way on your opponent's side of the board and they get a whole bunch of action points to recruit a bunch of new uh creatures and and and, uh units and stuff and maybe do some cool special abilities so you got to be really careful about when and why and how you are doing the really big move that you want to do. And that's really what the game uh, boils down to. And you really want to understand all of the different decks that are in the game. And one thing that's that's uh, that's neat about it is uh, the decks that actually come with it. So it's not like these games where you get a deck and there's like Uh, The decks are like, I think there are 30 cards in a deck. And it's not like there's 30 different cards and you've got to learn all of them. There's usually like maybe five or six different cards in the deck. So there's redundancy. You're not gonna see a lot of variance, but there's enough in there to keep it uh, variable. And like I said, there's six factions that come in the game. And so you start to really learn and see how each of the factions work. And they work very differently actually. Uh, like there's kind of an undead one where they'll like bring the creatures back out of the graveyard. You know, there's a faction where uh, all the creatures are are very big and they're very expensive to recruit and to move around. And then, you know, another one where there's a bunch of little kind of uh, very small creatures that, you know, maybe they're very fast and they don't cost a lot, but they're also not very strong. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of good asymmetry really in this game. Uh, and the other interesting part of it is when you build these units and you stack them, Uh, Each of the characters or most of the characters will have an ability that's on their card and if it's on top of the stack, then their ability is active. But as you get into fights, then you start to take damage and you have to remove creatures off the top. And then other creatures underneath that, their abilities will become visible and then their ability will kick in. So there's some really cool, interesting things you can do uh, with that and that's kind of of the next level. Mm -hmm. Uh, that I would say you get to, because I played a few games of this, and that wasn't really something. Definitely in the first game we played, uh, that I was very concerned with, because it was just you know it, it's a little bit overwhelming. It's not you know too crazy complex, but uh, but then after a couple of plays, it's like oh if I tuck this one under here and it's on the bottom, or if this guy dies, then this thing will happen. I'll have this guy available, but I want this guy on top now because it makes this other thing cost less. You know you kind of get into the intricacies of all that stuff. Uh, so it's really, really cool. It plays very quick. I mean, once we got the hang of it, games were right about a half an hour or so. Uh, so it doesn't take very, very long. And I think it's kind of nice because it's not one of those like uh, super investment heavy games. In terms of, well, there's no deck building at all yet. They, they do say in the rule book that there'll be more uh, factions and sort of uh, supplementary packs to build your deck. But right now, I'm kind of glad that's not in there because you, there's six factions in the game and you can run all kinds of different combinations and pairings and things like that to uh, see how different factions work against each other. Um, uh, but there's, there's enough there. It's kind of a nice sort of entry-level-ish game to this sort of kind of tactical combat with cards and all that kind of sort of sub-genre that we have. Uh, but I definitely recommend this. This is a lot of fun and it's very interesting. And even if you're kind of getting hammered, which can happen, especially if one player's playing that knows the game or the cards very well and the other's kind of new. That's certainly going to happen, but the games are over quick enough that uh, you're like, okay, I kind of got it now, and then you can kind of go back and play it. So uh, I definitely recommend this one. Uh, that's Crystal Clans from Plat Hat. And the final game to talk about for this month, and you should be seeing a video review for it go up in a week or so. Is also from AEG, just like Space Base was, and this is Thunderstone Quests. Now, before I get into a little bit of history of Thunderstone, uh, now before I talk about Thunderstone Quest, I want to give you a little bit of history about uh, Thunderstone and myself. <laughs> Thunderstone, the first one, did not like it whatsoever, hated that game. Uh, you know, I played back then, I played uh, Dominion, and I played Ascension, and I love those, and somebody said, you gotta try Thunderstone, it's like a dungeon crawl with the uh, deck building, and I was like, oh, that sounds great, good idea. I played it, nope, did not like it whatsoever, felt very not thematic to me. I actually think Dominion is more thematic than Thunderstone. Uh, it just seemed very random and very deck-building at the time, and all that stuff, I don't want to belabor too much, but I honestly, I didn't care for it. I never got a chance to play Thunderstone Advance, which was the second edition. And frankly, AEG sent to me this sent this to me out of the blue. And I'm like, Really? I thought I'd been vocal about my dislike, but obviously, you know, not everybody watches everything and listens to everything somebody says. I was like, eh, <laughs> Thunderstone. Oh, okay. And I looked at it and I opened the box and the box is gigantic. It's like as thick as Gloomhaven. And it has little minis in it. I'm like, oh, cool, little mini guys. And then uh, it has these location tiles. I'm like, oh, okay. So instead of just like going to a dungeon and randomly hitting a monster, oh, I see you can kind of move around a little bit. Okay, interesting. So I kind of looked at the the board. There's there's also a board for the village. I'm like, okay, that looks a little bit more in depth than the original. I kind of started flipping through the rule book and like oh there's a quest book okay that's that's a good sign and so I kind of got into it I'm like all right let's give this a shot I freaking love this game this is so fun this one feels like a dungeon crawl like it is it feels like you're playing a dungeon crawl yeah you've got the deck building but the the tweaks and the ways that they uh, they've changed the system uh, just and they're very very subtle in some ways uh, really marries itself well to the dungeon crawl theme now if you played thunderstone and you've played a deck building game it's got those same mechanics you've got like a market space you can buy a single card every turn you add it to your discard pile when you run out of your discard pile you shuffle your deck and so on and you either go to the market or you go to the dungeon if you go to the market you're trying to generate money off the cards and buy new cards maybe recruit new heroes in this case you can level up heroes you know you take out the level zero adventure replace it with the level one fighter or mage and then you can level those up uh and you Uh, mostly time most of the time you spend experience to do that and experience you get in the dungeon so if you don't go to the marketplace on your turn you go to the dungeon probably because you've got a hand of a bunch of attack cards and you can move then your little figurine through different levels of the dungeon and you have to spend these these uh cards with light with little torches on them but you can also get little tokens and buy those in town and spend those and you move your fella around the dungeon there and you fight a monster that's in there and the monsters have cool little abilities and things that'll sort of mitigate damage. What room they're in will change things up a bit. Uh, it'll, it'll generate, like, treasure cards for you. So you get that whole, like, uh, sort of a fun surprise of, oh look, I got a treasure. Or, oh, it's some extra gold, or it's this cool magic hammer, and so on. And then you can also deal out side quests. So it gives you kind of a sort of a secondary objective, really. It's like, okay, if I do this, I'll get this crazy wand or this extra... A uh, bunch of experience points in addition to sort of tromping through the dungeon trying to chase down and you, it has this little mechanism where you have these key cards shuffled in once the fourth one comes over the boss flips up and then everybody gets extra turns to fight them and stuff like that um but yeah so just the kind of the changes and things uh the different kind of subtle things you can do with some of the cards and the abilities and all those kind of real subtleties and details that i could get into those complement the dungeon crawl theme of that kind of fantasy theme of the game. And in this case, it, even though you're playing competitively and a lot of times you'd think like, okay, the competitive side of this is kind of tacked on because you're all going to the dungeon together. You're all going in different uh, you know, times and places. Why isn't this a co-op? Uh, I I think they are actually developing a co-op for this and it, it's ripe for it. But even if, if it, they never had a co-op for it, i'd want it because i think it would be fun but i don't think it needs it whatsoever because you could you really are different uh bands of adventurers so each player is basically running a troop your deck of creatures and adventurers that are in your deck and you're trying to be the best most badass adventurer who makes the most money and gets the most glory and experience that's it you're both you're all trying to do good but you're all trying to be a badass if you have ever read the comic book uh rat queens which is a sort of I don't know. It's kind of like a D&D comic book. Uh, It's similar to that, where you have these kind of different competing troops that are friendly with each other. They don't really fight each other, usually. Sometimes they do, like in a bar brawl or something. But, uh, you know, you're all trying to do good for the most part and kill the bad evil mage or demon lady or whatever that's in the dungeon. And all of this stuff just works so, so well. So anyway, I'm going to do a video of this in a week or so. Uh, You know, the art's good. The box is huge. I think they're doing like a follow-up Kickstarter to this. I think this was on Kickstarter. I don't know if they're doing a release or what. I think it was successful. Um, And uh, I know there's some expansions and things that you can get. And this quest book is neat. You can actually do like a campaign where you can keep uh, a card out of the market in your starting deck. So each time you start the next game, you already have like kind of a little bit uh, of your engine juiced up uh, and going on. And I should mention that because that's one thing that with the other one, the first Thunderstone is you'd start off and it would be kind of slow and boring at the beginning, and then you'd get going and the game would be over. This one, you it can be very, uh, very, very quick to get in and get going with the game and get fighting. This is one of the kind of the subtle things I'm talking about, uh, and that's really cool because you have these kind of c- combo cards right out of the gate. You can go in and do like multiple actions on your turn and, and get a lot done early and get really spun up. And the, the kind of the flip side to that actually is the way that the game scales is very interesting because when you play this as a two-player game, uh, you get a little bit more opportunity to to get more turns, uh, theoretically, because the, the 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 game length is not quite fixed, but it's ballpark the same based on how you get these keys out. So anyway, but you, you math will tell you that more often than not, you're going to get uh, more turns with a two-player game. So by the end of that game in a two-player game, and this is this has just been my experience is that you are a friggin monster. Your deck is just like, you're just slaughtering the dungeon, the lower levels of the dungeon. But when you play with four players, uh, that same kind of average number of turns is divided up by four. So you have to be a little bit smarter and more deck building efficient when you're playing with that number of players. The game's going to end quicker for you. You're not going to get as much done. But I like that. It doesn't, It's it's not a problem. I think that's actually a feature of the game. Because uh, either way, you just got to kind of know your environment and know how you're playing. And again, with a two player, you can just, just get to your deck, your your engine is just going through, and it's just a lawnmower going through the whole dungeon. And in four player, you got to be quick and efficient and chop, chop. You got to get in there and get those points because your score is not going to be as big as it was when you're playing a two player game. That's something you got to realize just kind of going into it. And you've got to be able to kind of chase after and get after those those points. And, you know, don't forget about your side quest. And you can join, like, a guild of, like, mages or guild of fighters. So that gives you kind of an impetus to gear your deck a certain way and all that stuff. But it's also very thematic. Um, you know, and they still have rules for, like, Thunderstone Epic, uh, which I've never played. Uh, but I kind of want to just do the campaign. It's kind of like a little, you know, campaign system in the deck builder. You know, But it's, it's very simple and very efficient in terms of the kind of the overhead for doing that. Uh, yeah, so I, man, I definitely recommend this game. It's just really fun. And the other thing, I'm going to go, go off a little bit more about it because like I said, uh, this is a game I, I love at this point. Uh, the kind of the takeaway for me here is, yeah, you're trying to be efficient and win and have a, a, a well-tuned deck and get the most points. Uh, but the last game that I played with it, and i played it four times now, The last game I played, I knew I wasn't going to win because my buddy uh, next to me was... I I could tell they were doing really well. But I I wasn't sad because of that because I had built my deck in such a way... I I was building it smart. I was competitive. I ended up getting second place. And I built it in such a fun kind of thematic way that I still had fun going through and doing the motions. I had this crazy wand that I would like hit with people it was one of my side quest items and it would like uh, spit out these magic butterflies that did this crazy stuff and I was still playing thematically and it was tuned and married and joined at the hip with playing smartly as well and like my buddy uh, across the table in the same game he wasn't playing well but this is because he didn't really realize what was happening and next time this happened I think he would play much better is he got like these vampire cards. That was just, they were nothing to do with like the central quest, but it was just something in the world. So it kind of grounds you in the world. It's not just going through, you know, these are the objectives. These are the monsters in this particular scenario. These are the points. You've got to do this because of that and that. There's enough kind of extra ancillary things like these side quests and legendary items that can interlude themselves, no matter which scenario you're playing. So again, that kind of grounds it in a world. And all of his adventures were turning into vampires and stuff like that. So was, this made it really fun, and he still had fun. He got cream because they actually give you negative points since you got to play around that, uh, but they're very powerful. So th- just those little kind of things on the edge, that kind of frosting on the cake uh, type of stuff was really cool. Anyway, so that is Thunderstone Quests. So let's take a quick a little break here, and then uh, come back and I'll talk to you about uh, about publishing games and what I've what I've really learned about that and sort of this idea that I had had and I had run by some people and kind of the information and uh, some of the great discussions I've had. I just wanted to kind of broadcast that out and share that uh, with folks. I thought it was, I had learned some very interesting things. welcome back and we're going to talk a little bit about uh sort of publishing games a lot of sort of different uh topics i'm going to talk about it holistically and maybe a little bit specifically but before i get into my little bit i want to call out a couple of twitter threads uh by tiffany ralph Uh, she's the one tar on youtube and also on twitter and i'll I'll link these into the, the show notes there she got into a very specific uh a breakdown of sort of the cost of publishing a game. Kind of from a designer perspective and also from the publisher perspective and mostly through the eyes of Kickstarter from kind of taking an idea and bringing it uh, finally to the customer. Uh, Very concise uh, couple of threads. Uh, So I'm gonna link those there. And she also, in addition to her YouTube channel, she also is working currently uh, with with publishers. She's worked with them in the past and stuff and so she definitely is uh, knowledgeable about all this stuff. Uh, But I'll link those there, and she explains them uh, in much more detail and much more succinctly and efficiently than I can rambling on a podcast. Uh, I definitely recommend folks just click over to those. They're a very quick read, uh, but they're, you know, one of the nice things about, like, a Twitter thread. I'm kind of back and forth on the whole concept because it's weird. But in this case, and in a lot of cases sometimes, it's very sort of uh, very bullet pointy, bam, 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 bam. Uh, And I'd highly recommend folks take a look at that. Uh, so what kind of spun this up was, okay, so I was watching this thing called Robert Kirkman uh, History of Comics. Now, Robert Kirkman is the guy that uh, writes Walking Dead, and he had a six-episode uh, series on AMC, I think at the end of last year, about various comic book uh, creators. So they talked about the creators of Superman, of uh, Wonder Woman, and so on. And the final episode was about a company called Image Comics, which started up in the 90s. Uh, Some of these uh, artists and uh, writers had broken away from Marvel and DC because, frankly, they weren't getting paid what they should because they were the creators of the work. Although, you know, having the name Spider-Man in the book also sells a lot of comics. uh, A lot of people were buying them because the stories were good and the art was good. So they broke off and made Image comics. They made Spawn, Savage Dragon, Wildcats, and a bunch of other stuff that nobody remembers. Uh, But Image is still around. They have some great comic books that they read, uh, Walking Dead, and uh, one that I like is called Saga. I think that was done by Image. It was, yeah, Image. I think that's Saga. I mean, uh, why the last man and stuff. So they they do some real kind of off the beaten path sort of storylines that aren't like superheroes or straight uh, sci-fi. But anyway, so the, the concept really hit me. And it, it's it feels like it was kind of an idea that's been in the back of my head that sort of sprang to life as I watched uh, this episode, and I was a big fan of the comics back then. I was in high school when this uh, stuff was going on, and I thought, you know, hey, what would be, what would that look like in terms of the board game world? Uh, now, the board game world is already very uh, diffused and segregated across uh, tons and hundreds and thousands of publishers already. It's not like we have two big publishers, and that's it. I mean, we've got Asmodee and Hasbro and stuff, sure, but we've got your Stronghold, we've got your Tasty Minstrel, we've got your uh, well, I was gonna say Plat Hat, but they now are owned by Asmodee. You know, you've got your Stonemeyer games, your uh Cephalofair Games, which is just Isaac Childress and so on. You've got tons of smaller companies, Splotter, everything. Yeah, I can go on and on and on. So we're kind of already in that position. But I was thinking, okay, well, those are publishers. Uh, most of the time a designer is like pitching to a publisher in some rare cases, like in Jamie Stegmeyer's case with Stonemaier, that was very small. It's basically him. He started with Viticulture. He moved into Scythe and other games. Uh, So this is very much kind of a one-man band. And I started to kind of uh, poke around and talk to different people about, okay, so what if we could put more emphasis here on the designers and the artists? Because the designer gets about 5 to 10% of a royalty uh, on the game being sold. And you think, okay, well, that's not really a lot for the design of the game, which is really the core spirit and heart of the game you got no design you got nothing you could have a design with meteoric or art and there would be some people that would ignore it and there'd be a lot of people maybe that would play it uh you know give or take but you'd have the game there and the game the design is is the key right you can you can sort of sub in a publisher or sub in uh component quality uh and stuff like that but the design is the key okay I'm not trying to sell those other things short at all because you need you want good art You want good component, you want good sort of ergonomics, uh, you know, the look and feel, touch and feel, and how everything kind of, the graphic design and all that stuff works together and becomes a cohesive game. All that stuff is super important. But I thought, okay, let me sort of push the buttons there and see, uh, you know, because there's got to be games that some designers have. Uh, in their brain that they want to get out and there's a lot of people that, that do that they self-publish and they're good and they're golden a lot of people don't want to spend time doing that, They the Kickstarter and stuff eats away at their design, they want to just design the game, they don't want to publish and deal with Kickstarter backers that are angry over nothing, you know, and that kind of stuff uh, that is a drain, that will suck the life out of you, I mean if you don't think that that will, it 100% will, uh, it gets in the way of the creative process, I mean that's a business side of it that's not the creative side of it uh, the business side of it you can scale and automate and, and and put on a factory assembly line the the assembly and manufacture of the games and the shipping of the games thats there's nothing creative about that but it takes you so much time and it just eats up your soul and your time the creative side of it is the part you've got to sit there and, and meditate on and play test and you know sit there and come up with ideas and research and and kind of find your muse and all that kind of jazz. So I thought, okay, so what if we could sort of move from a publisher as sort of the owner of the game and move from the move to a a publisher as a service. That was kind of the idea, where the publisher would, you know, help run the Kickstarter, worry about the logistics and all that kind of stuff and the designers then would be more married to it. They would get a greater royalty out of it. Uh, you know, I wasn't really worried about numbers. I was thinking, okay, let's kick the designer up to like 30%. And then you would get the um, uh, the artists more involved. You give them a higher royalty because the artists all get like a commission, like 99% of them. They, you, you get a commission for a certain number of pieces of art let's say you get 50 pieces of art on cards and rule books and things and so they get them a, a, several thousand dollars for that probably depending on the size of everything and then you know that's what they get and they move on they don't really own the rights to anything and that was the other key to this and the key to the image comics back in the 90s was owning the rights to your creation whereas like in board games like somebody has uh, you know they give me the design for i don't know tiger's Euphrates. And that, that publisher then owns, uh, not necessarily the IP rights, but at least like the license to publish that IP, in a, in a sense. It's a little bit more to it than that. But that's basically what is They kind of own the license to that for a certain number of years, and then it'll revert back to the designer, and they can go shop that license around uh, to for another publisher if they want to, or go back to the same one. Uh, but in this case, I was saying, okay, what if you made it, and then the designer immediately, as soon as the game is published, their license reverts back to them that's all it would be with kind of the service sort of an incubator kind of a Kickstarter thing. And, uh, and so the, most of the feedback of folks that I talked to, were like, well, that's really good. I mean, cause obviously, yes, we want more money. Uh, that would be great. Cause I can have a design that wants money and, you know, and it gives me more money and that's great. And I'd be a little bit more in tune with the creative process as well. And Hey, I get my IP rights back. So let's say we have a smash hit and then Asmodee wants it and then it's fine. Yeah. Go take it asthma day, That's fine. I mean, theoretically the publisher would have gotten their money out of running the service and they take their cut and uh you know enough to pay bills and you know actually publish the game and all that stuff. And so that was very enticing. I talked to maybe a half a dozen designers and maybe a little bit less than that in terms of artists and even some of the publishers and the manufacturers and the distributors I talked to thought, "Oh, that's a, that sounds like a really good idea." And even the artists thought, "Okay, that seems like uh, that'd be pretty cool because they don't usually get a royalty bit uh, of it. And the kind of the, sort of one thing that kind of grew out of this idea was actually marrying together an artist and a designer early on in the process of creating the game. Because one thing that happens with games is you have kind of all of this, like this huge army of designers all out there trying to innovate and build the next cool uh, mechanic or treatment of a certain genre or theme. Kind of off in their own world usually or you may you got some folks that like work at fantasy flight or as at asthma day or something or work with uh you know one or two publishers more often than not uh, but you have them there and you and depending on the publisher like may, let's say i have a design and i give it to the publisher and they take it and i don't hear from them they sign it until maybe a couple of emails back and forth for a year and then eventually the game comes out and i'm like oh look at the art they applied to it or whatever Whereas another publisher might let the designer more uh, have more say and get more involved and get in tune with the artist early on and have more input into the design and more input into what they call the development of the game because the publisher oftentimes will take the game, run it through several play tests on their side within kind of an in-house or or, or hired third-party developer who may or may not work with the designer closely. They may, they may not. Uh, and then you know they get the game out on the other side, but I was thinking of if you start early in the process and you get a designer married with an artist and they have a design that they, they can really build up a grounded world uh, for this game to live in, or at least a cohesive and integrated theme where the mechanics and the art and everything are together, and the art has a little bit more creative input, not like paint me an elf you know uh. <laughs> And so you can have a little bit more creativity and innovation in terms of the art side of it. And so that was all very, very interesting. And so then I started to uh, talk to more of the logistics side of it. I'm thinking at this point in, in my process, I'm thinking this is great because um, you know, I'm a software guy and I can kind of look at automating things and, and I can be very procedural and business-like. I think if you've seen some of my reviews, you'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then, uh, you know, get into that and deal again with the manufacturer and the distributor and just work with that. And then act as a sort of a developer a little bit, uh, you know, feedback in terms of the play testing. Because at this point in my, at the thought process, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I, well, I want the game to be something I think is good, right? So that's really the trick. But then on the other side of my head, I'm thinking that doesn't matter because I'm just providing a service. It's really the artist and the publisher that are putting the game out as themselves and it's being published through this entity called drive-through games or walking fish games or whatever and it's just like oh no we're just a vehicle here uh and i'm running the kickstarter and answering questions and logistics and what stretch goals we are what and and all that stuff and that sort of just insulating the designer and the artist from that um but it also should be something i'd want to put out a pile of crap too so that was an interesting sort of conundrum when looking at it as publisher as service so Anyway, I tried to I talked to uh, one distributor type folks, and in terms of like the warehousing and that side of it and just the uh, fulfillment and the shipping end of the Kickstarter, and I talked to the folks at uh, at panda game manufacturing, and here's where kind of the rubber meets the road is and this is this is the point of me sharing this on the podcast at this point is panda does a fantastic job. They will friggin' like hold your hand through the process. And as I started to talk more and more with other publishers and things and talk with Panda who were fantastic, uh, I realized that this service is somewhat provided to on different levels by these different game manufacturers. And I didn't talk to any other manufacturers outside of Panda. Uh, And I think my hunch is that they do this the best. Where I actually, uh, let me just give you a little bit of the process here. So I went into the Pandas website and I started just like looking at their forms and things. I'm like, okay, let's pretend I wanted to make a card game. And I filled out their form of, oh, it has 50 cards and this and that. And the rule book's this size. And there's a punch board with some tokens. And I filled it out and sent it in. I'm like, oh, okay. I just sent a proposal to Panda. So I did another one. And I was like, okay, this is a bigger box. It's more of a board game size box with like, you know, eight stacks of cardboard token uh, boards and stuff like that. And there's not just a board and player boards and all that stuff. And so they got back to me and I said, well, okay, well, here's where I'm at. This whole idea that I just explained to you about working with artists and designers and, and, uh, and they, they were very, very excited. And I was like, that's really cool. And that's a great idea. And I really started to realize that they do this. Um, so they do, they won't like run your Kickstarter and worry about your shipping and your fulfillment and all that stuff. Uh, for that, I talked to uh, the folks at Greater Than Games, and it's well known that they have a giant warehouse. They do their own stuff through there, but they also act as a shipping and fulfillment. And I think like Fun Again is starting to do that. And so there are people out there that you can get this done with. So these these exist. They're 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 tangible. You can achieve and reach out to them and get kind of get in their schedule. But the takeaway for me was like how involved. Uh, Panda games manufacturing actually is and can be with the process and how helpful they are because we talked about all kinds of stuff in terms of cost saving and the efficiency of like doing certain kind of tokens versus another and even with miniatures like if you do this kind of miniature for this kind of game this makes more sense and this will save you some money whereas if you're doing something a little bit different that's actually going to cost you a lot more in terms of the molds and all that Uh, but he really kind of rattled off uh, a lot of things that I, that were concerning to me, like if I was imagining myself being involved in this position and acting as sort of a, a, a buffer and a shield uh, for the designer and the artist, uh, Panda uh, really, I thought, did a fantastic job. And other manufacturers might do that as well in terms of working with you, getting the art files right and all that kind of stuff, and really th- making you think about how you're packaging and putting together this product at the end of the day. Uh, so that was this was just all kind of very um, interesting sort of process to go through. And again, I want to refer back to those two uh, Twitter threads uh, that I linked there from Tiffany, because I think if you kind of marry this concept that I've talked about a little bit, and then some of the dollars and cents that she uh, outlined there were matching up 100% with the, what I was talking about with the folks uh, involved. And so you, you get a real sense of all the kind of uh, hoops and, and, and steps to get a game from that kernel of an idea uh, to and out the door to a customer and all of the kind of levels that have to be involved. Uh, And so it kind of circling back to Panda though, I just wanted to stress, like if you are an artist or a designer listening to this, hook up with your buddies, hook up with your friends that are also artists and designers and find somebody maybe, I know running a Kickstarter is a giant pain, but if you have this idea for something for a game, Don't like, you know, don't worry about fulfilling like the next thing in a publisher's line or hooking up or lining up with, you know, oh, and I'm just going to pick on roll and write like, oh, everybody's doing roll and write. So I've got to come up with a roll and write game and then uh, find the publisher that hasn't published a roll and write game right now and you know fit that line and all this stuff that's fine i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all that's cool i mean that can be a fun process for sure to kind of crack that nut on rolling right and see you know what hasn't been done yet but i'm just saying I, I think it's possible i think it's there it's there to be to be had if you've got a, a designer and an artist together and you can find somebody to sort of uh that you trust that you that could run interference, run the kickstarter for you run uh uh, the communication with Panda and give them a cut of your game for doing, you know, you know, pay them for helping you do all that logistics, get in contact with somebody like a Greater Than Game or a Fun Again or some other uh, type of distributor person. And that stuff, and you can sort of build up your own little studio of people uh, you know, that can can do that where you have sort of a publishing house, and I know this exists in, in some facet but I don't think it is, it's not a, a frequent occurrence. And you can have a house like an image comics type of thing where uh, it's a bunch of designers and artists together with a couple of people that, you know, they're not publishers. They're not dictatorial types of publishers are saying this is the style of game that I want to run. And this is what I'm going to do because this is my brand as a publisher. You can just run these as a service. And if your vision, and your artistic vision is is cool enough and fun enough and you execute on it then it can become very successful. Cause if you look at image comics, look at the diversity of books that is out now with image. You can't look at image and say, this is their brand other than, you know, they try different things and they have most, for the most part, I think uh, I, I, I don't really, I'm not into comics as much as I was, but for the filter that I have, that's very surface level. There's, they put out a lot of cool, weird stuff. That's awesome. Um, And there's a ton of other comic book companies like that in board games i don't think we have that you know we have publishers that do awesome stuff and i look forward to that but it's all like one sort of one sort of sound coming out of it like you think it like the cool or not they have a certain sound that comes out uh but they they get diverse i mean they have like your blood rage and your rising sun but they have your council of four and your ethnos and stuff like that so so they're bouncing around i'm and I want. To, I don't want to say, like, this doesn't exist and, and the publishers are, aren't doing uh, what they could here because they certainly 100% are. But I also think if you want to push and scratch that itch for some really drastic uh, innovation, I think this kind of approach might be something worth exploring where you can really take home and drive something like a fog of love, right? Now, they had to go and publish the game themselves, and I'm sure they had help and stuff like that, but that's the only game to come out of them so far. Whereas, if they had to do less of that, if you had sort of a co-op kind of attitude here, of artists and writers, or writers, artists and designers and other artists and other designers, all kind of working together collaboratively together, not necessarily uh, beholden to a certain degree to the publisher's sort of brand and their their molding. I think we can get some really cool interesting stuff uh so that's uh that's all i gotta really say about that and so that i think the sort of the dynamics of that process and some of the mentality and some of the sort of um you know the handcuffs that are sort of around the process and by necessity uh the publishers have certain things that they want to do and that they're branded for and they have certain pipelines that they want to serve And the extreme example is that is Fantasy Flight with all their Star Wars stuff. That is a worthy market, obviously, and it's going to you know they're going to pump through and serve that market. But I think there's some really something good could come out of that approach. I think. So anyway, um, that's kind of my thoughts on that. And definitely take again a look at uh, Tiffany Care's uh, um, her Twitter threads. It give you kind of a sense of, of the way the money moves through all of that process. So I think if you can you can reevaluate that pipeline, uh, then I think uh, I think I think there's some possibilities there um, for sure. And everybody seemed to that I talked to seemed, not everybody, most people, <laughs> uh, seemed to think that was uh, that was pretty good. A lot of people, some some few, a very small portion of it, uh, just to kind of talk out of the other side of this and sort of um, play a little pro con idea. Uh, they thought everything's fine as it is, and there wouldn't really that would be. That wouldn't really work uh, because most people um, as designers and artists uh, this is not their day job the majority of people it is not Um, so i think for that kind of situation uh, they're happy to get one or two designs published or a handful of designs or get their art into a handful of games among the other things that they do art for Uh, so that's fine as well so um, but i'm just saying the sort of the protagonist in that case for the industry is the publisher. And I'm not saying that's bad at all because I love games and there's several games that come out every year that I love and I can't wait to play, but it would be interesting to sort of switch the protagonist by rearranging that pipeline in a, in a sense. Um, and I think you want to be careful about it because you're also, you know, there's going to be some money investment stuff like that up front to get art and, you know, roll up a Kickstarter and get all of that kind of stuff going. But, um, that's kind of the details of that. Anyway, so that was just kind of a rambly topic and something that I had a lot of fun kind of researching and talking to different folks about um, over the last uh, couple of months, really. Um, so, yeah, any comments or feedback on that are definitely welcome. Uh, so that's uh, about it. As far as a off-topic random thing, I really have enjoyed the Cobra Kai on YouTube Red. And I I have said before, I'm not a fan of nostalgia. Um, In general, I don't enjoy it, even though I don't mind watching things that are old. But the nostalgia bit where people kind of, like, hang their hat on stuff, I don't really go for it. But this one, I really, I bought into a lot of the nostalgia in this, um, with this whole, like, karate kid revival thing. Uh, It was good, though, because there was a lot of modern stuff, too. So I think if you have, uh, if you're a younger person, you know, or if you have kids in high school or something, they might enjoy it as well. Uh, look look uh, good, a lot of humor, a lot of seriousness, uh, a lot of good treatment of sort of nostalgia versus uh, modern look at things, and uh, really fun kind of idea there. Uh, and mostly, it made me kind of nostalgic for because um, I kind of grew up down near that area, uh, just north of LA, uh, in Ventura County, and. Um, And so it kind of made me more nostalgic for sunny weather and down there and stuff like that. But uh, uh, yeah, so anyway, that's kind of just a little random tidbit at the end of the podcast. I hope folks enjoy their month. Uh, Look forward to one or two videos probably coming up before the next podcast. Uh, One of those will definitely be Thunderstone Quest. Uh, But other than that, uh, take care of yourselves. All right. Bye.